This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. And today, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. And I've entitled this particular study, Assignments. There comes a point in every Bible study when we're looking at a passage of Scripture where we ask the all-important question, so what? What is to be the outcome of the things that we're hearing about? And that's the case as we study the book of Hebrews. The first major division of the book is the one we've just covered, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 10, verse 18, which basically covers the theology behind what he's going to be saying in the last few chapters of the book. Because without that theological underpinning, without that basis, there's no reason to do the things that we're going to be commanded to do. But if the theology is correct and true, then there's every reason to be obedient to these exhortations that God gives us through the writer to the book of Hebrews. Now, what he has shown in the chapters that we just mentioned, chapters 1 through 10, is the preeminence or the superiority of the Son of God to the three pillars of Judaism. And he discussed Jesus' superiority to angels, Jesus' superiority to Moses, and Jesus' superiority to the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is superior to all of these things. And therefore, following Christ is the best way, is the only way to really actually be in alignment with God's will and to be experiencing God's salvation and God's life. So in these verses, he's going to talk about now that he has reminded these believers, these are people who did believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he had died on the cross for their sins, and that he had risen from the dead. They had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so, because that's true, then there are some things they can do now to further the kingdom of God. And these are assignments that the Holy Spirit will be giving us, too, as we consider these challenges. There's a couple of bases for these assignments given first. Again, God never asks us to do something without giving us a reason to do it. And so verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, now he's talking to fellow believers, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. All right, so the first basis is that the believer has an entrance into the presence of God. We have access to the heavenly, holy inner sanctuary, the heavenly, holy place, because the high priest, the spiritual, the true high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have access to the heavenly worship center because we share in Jesus' priesthood. It's called the Melchizedekian priesthood. It's outside the Levitical priesthood. The New Testament believer today is in the same position as the Old Testament high priest, we have the right to enter the Holy of Holies into the very presence of God. And we can have confidence to enter this. We can enter it with boldness. We have freedom to orally express our concerns, the concerns of our heart because of the means of the blood of Jesus Christ. The Greek word that's used there for blood is used only here, and it means freshly slaughtered. It's a kind of a freshness that never grows old. That means the blood of Christ is a living thing. 
in the sense that it is forever efficacious for putting us right with God. The blood of Christ takes away or washes away or atones for all the sins that we have committed or ever will commit. So we are saved by his grace through his sacrifice. All right? So we have a new and living way which he inaugurated through the veil, that is his flesh. Jesus established this new way, this living way, by the death of his humanity. Jesus' body, his physical body, was kind of like the veil in the temple. When Christ died on the cross, we're told in the Gospels that the temple veil was rent in two. Therefore, the thing that divided man between mankind and God was, was ripped in two. There was no longer that veil in place, and that we, through Christ, could enter into the Holy of Holies. It was at that very moment that Christ's body died. When Jesus died, the veil was rent in two. And so he has provided a way for us through the veil, that is through the sacrifice of his human body for us in order that we might be made right with God. Because that's true, is that we should draw near. It says, second basis is in verse 21. It's because of the sovereign power of the great high priest. Let us draw near with a, with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The second basis for our assignment is the sovereign power of the great high priest, the sovereign power of Jesus Christ. And so we have these, the sovereign power over Christ. And so in verse 22, he gives us our exhortations or our assignments. Assignment number one, let us draw near. Now, that's a ritual term, which means worshiping God, worshiping him in the present tense. And it means it's a continuous action. Let us keep on drawing near. We walk through the day in a continuous state of worshiping God. It doesn't mean we get out and pray or anything. It just means that we're aware of the fact that God is in contact with our lives and we're in contact with him moment by moment throughout the day. And he talked about this back in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, when he said we're to move away from lukewarmness for the purpose of appropriating grace. It means as I go through the day, I consciously receive from God the grace I need to live a positive and joyful and effective life in this world. And the way to draw near, the way to, to carry out that assignment, is to, first of all, do it with a sincere heart. To have real devotion. And then we're to do it with full assurance of faith. That means a right faith. It's a mature, vigorous faith. The believer lives by faith in that which God has promised because God can deliver what he has promised. All right? We have a, a heart sprinkled We'll draw near with a, with a full assurance of faith. I am convinced that what God has promised is true because I know that what God has promised, he can deliver. God has all power to do everything. He doesn't have part of the power of the universe. There is nothing that is outside of his power and his control. And he has promised that if I believe in him, he will save me and he will sustain me. 
So therefore, I can rely upon that promise. And he goes on to say that we've had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. All right. So our hearts have been sprinkled clean. We've been justified. We've been redeemed. The stain of sin has been removed by the blood of Christ. And so our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We've been justified. We've been declared righteous before God, and therefore we are free from guilt. God holds nothing against us. It's in the perfect tense, which means this happens continually in my walk with God. It is positional sanctification. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and I won't go into why it's called that. It means 70 in the Greek. But that word that is, that's used here for positional sanctification of the believer is the one that was used when the high priest in the Old Testament was inducted into his office in Exodus chapter 29, verse 21, and in Leviticus, when the high priest was initiated into his office for the very first time. So we have been initiated into our office. We're positionally sanctified by the full forgiveness of God for our sins based upon the finished work of Christ. And then we have a living body, our bodies washed with pure water. And again, that's in the perfect tense, which means it's a continuous cleansing, continuous washing. It's because of regeneration. And he talks about this in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. It's a continual washing throughout our earthly lives. And it is the Septuagint word for the high priest, for the bathing that he did prior to his priestly work. Before the priest went down to carry out his priestly duties, he went through some ceremonial immersion, really, kind of a baptism of washing that he did to cleanse himself. And then there were washings throughout every one of the ceremonies that he went through. In the second portion of this admonition is that let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Okay, so we hold fast the confession of our hope. The content of our hope is that Jesus is truly the Messiah of God. Jesus is truly the Savior that God has sent us. It is God who keeps us saved. It is holding fast the confession of our hope. It is God who keeps us saved and the continual cleansing, which provides the divine side of eternal security. God is hanging on to us. In turn, we demonstrate our faith by holding on to him. We're not saved by holding on to him. We hold on to him because he's holding on to us. We are saved. And when we hold on to him in a faithful walk in the world, demonstrating that we trust him in our lives and that we actually existentially do trust him and turn to him continually with our problems and prayer and reliance upon his wisdom, then we become a witness by the way we live. And we also gives us strength. And it's a way we appropriate the grace of God that he tells us to appropriate throughout this particular book. In verse 23, he reminds us that why should we hold on? We hold on because he's faithful that promise. Let us hold the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It is again a reminder that God has all power he will keep his promises, and that if we 
demonstrate before the world that we trust him and that we hold on to his promises and we carry out the assignments that he gives us as believers, then we have a full assurance that God will keep his promise. He won't fail us ever. We may fail him from time to time. And of course, we can come and get forgiveness for that. But he will never fail us. He will never leave us. In verse 24, we have the third exhortation or assignment. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good works. The word therefore, consider, is to make a careful study. Now, sometimes it tells us to do that about God. But here it tells us to make a careful study of our fellow believers, of our fellow Christians. What are we trying to learn about as we make this study of them? We are learning how to encourage one another, stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. We are there to help fellow believers walk consistently with the Lord. We are there to encourage them. We're there to pray for them. We're there to fellowship with them, which will keep them strong in the faith, keep us strong in the faith. So that's one of the one of the commandments that we're given here. One of the assignments that we're given here is to turn outward, remind ourselves that we have a responsibility to be encouragers of our fellow believers in our walk with the Lord and in their walk with the Lord. And so we, we encourage them to, to do the, the good works that are necessary to, to be a good witness in the world and also to keep them experiencing the true fullness of the, of the joy of the Lord by doing the, the things that God has put us here to do, living a positive and faithful life. In verse 25, we have the fourth assignment that he gives us based upon the fact that he is faithful to do what he promised. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the fourth assignment is don't abandon gathering ourselves, you know, going to church. Don't abandon gathering with other believers. And that refers not only to going to church in the formal sense of the congregations of which we are a part, but I think it also refers to Bible fellowships and times of opportunities for fellowship with fellow believers like at the Capitol and with, and uh, in personal in our personal lives, small group study as well as full corporate worship. And the scripture doesn't say when the church is to gather, but the scripture definitely says the church should gather regularly and frequently. And we as believers have a responsibility to gather with fellow believers and identify ourselves as fellow believers by gathering with them there's a great deal of strength that comes from that. Of course, I grew up in a faithful church-going home, and I have spent my life worshiping with fellow believers. And one of the most vexing things about this coronavirus thing we've been going through is the inability to have our churches full. That really bothers me, and it's something I pray about frequently, is that our churches can open that as much as I you know, miss seeing the crowds at football games and things of that nature, being able to go to an occasional movie or something like that in a crowd or even go anywhere in a crowd. I really miss the gathering together of the church. And I worshiped in some of the largest churches in the country, and I worshiped in very small congregations, and it's always a wonderful experience to get to gather together. And so I'm looking forward to the day when we as a nation can start doing that again 
in full force. And I'm going to be praying that the churches will be packed out when that happens. I think they will be. And then he also says there's a reason why they need to gather together at that particular time existentially, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Oh, by the way, that word gathering together of believers is the one that's also used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, where it talks about the time when Jesus comes back and all the believers are gathered together to be with him at his second coming. This was an essential thing for them and was one of the causes of the writing of this letter, is that there is a day drawing near existentially for this group, and that was the judgment of God on the Jews, which came in 70 A.D., In the middle of Jesus' ministry, when he was rejected as the Messiah on the basis of being demon-possessed, he gave a prophecy that they would, the nation would be destroyed. That generation of Jewish believers who had rejected him would see the destruction of the Jewish nation. That came some 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus in 70 AD. And the book of Hebrews is written to these Jewish believers, these Jewish Christians, to encourage them to stay true to uh, the faith and and stay closely identified as believers in Christ because this judgment day was going to come and a great division was going to come among the Jewish people. They were going to be divided. That happened. And the Jews then lost their nation in 70 AD. They lost their temple. The Jews did not have a nation again until 1948 with the establishment of the nation of Israel. The temple has still not been rebuilt. Now we are told in prophecy that the temple will be standing when Christ returns and will be a part of the end time experiences, but that temple has not yet been rebuilt, but it will be rebuilt sometime prior to the second coming of Christ. A temple will be rebuilt that God did not authorize, but nevertheless uh, that will happen because Christ has replaced the temple. His death, his burial, and his resurrection have replaced all of that. But as Christians, we have a testimony to give to the world that God has provided a full living way for us to be right with him on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, eternal basis. And so may this encourage us to do our assignments and to bear a faithful witness to the Lord in our daily walk. May God richly, Bless you.